Well, hello there. Thanks for stopping by. My name is Josh, and I am the guiding teacher of Dharma Punks, New York, Buddhist pastor, and uh, just had a wonderful gathering of 70-plus people at Center Yoga this past Sunday. And the next scheduled gathering will be, I believe, March 26th at uh, Center Yoga, which is on 23rd Street, right off of Park Avenue. And if you want to join us, there'll be a link uh, on Center Yoga NYC. I think that's their website. So I hope if you're available to join us, you'll stop by. And uh, if you're up and early, Monday through Fridays at 8 a.m. in the morning, you can join Kathy with her daily pause meditation. And the info is on the dharmapunksnyc.com website. If you would like to support my work, the Venmo is dharmapunks with an X, NYC. The PayPal button is on the dharmapunksnyc.com as is the Patreon, and everything I do is supported entirely by donation, both the counseling, Buddhist pastoral work, and the teaching. So thanks for your support. And tonight, talking about skillful confidence, I think I've come up with some reflections worthy of your time and consideration, and if not, there'll be a different topic next Tuesday. So, in early Buddhism, confidence is called sada, S-A-D-D-H-A, sada. And confidence in one's capabilities is a supporting condition for joy, tranquility, wisdom, renouncing addiction, and awakening. In Buddhist practice, one of the most formidable hindrances to spiritual growth and happiness is the hindrance of self-doubt in one's capability, known as vichikicca. And it's considered to be the stickiest, even more sticky than our cravings, our aversion, our anxieties, our depressions. All the other hindrances are not quite as formidable as this persistent doubt and one's sense of uh, worthiness, one's sense of one's capability for growth, one's self-limitations. This brings us to the very important theme of the role that feelings play in behavior and capabilities, human mind states, inclinations, well before some of the greatest neuropsychologists and scientists of our day pointed to the precognitive role of feelings or what are often called uh, somatic markers, the Buddha noted that all experience in the root sutta, he noted that all experience is formed and shaped in accordance with how we feel in each, each moment, that it's the underlying feelings in the body that actually determine uh, our experience in many ways, that shape our experience. If I'm feeling comfortable, 
I can be capable of dealing with all kinds of difficult negative experiences. But if I'm tense, if I'm contracted, if I'm guarded, if I'm my body carries a lot of stress, then even very pleasant individuals, uh, pleasant situations might be experienced as more than I can handle. So in the one of the most important teachings, uh, probably the most important teaching of the Buddha, the Paticca Samuppada, which is the Buddha's uh, theory of how uh, suffering is created by the mind. The Buddha teaches that when the mind focuses attention on anything, any experience, any sensation, any person, any situation, one of three types of feelings arise in the body. Positive feelings, negative feelings, or no change, neutral feelings appear. And dependent upon these feelings, our emotions, our behaviors, our perceptions follow suit. So the Buddha subsequently notes the only way to change ourselves is to become aware of what we're feeling in life and be able to even change how we feel. So tonight's talk is going to be looking at this from both, uh, well, we've just covered some of the basic Buddhist insight, but I'm going to be talking about it also from a contemporary lens of some of the most important theories in um neuropsychology in terms of how people act, how people make decisions. Specifically, we're going to start out by talking about the insights of the great uh, neuroscientist Antonio Damasio. And if you're not familiar with Damasio's work, I would urge you to uh, pick up his masterpiece, Descartes' Error. It's not only a brilliant book, uh, but it's a very readable book, which is kind of rare for books on uh, neuropsychology, and I've certainly read quite a lot of them. So I like to explain his most important theory, which is known as the somatic marker hypothesis, and it explains the role that feelings play uh, in pretty much every element, every uh, human experience every human interaction. So to understand this, we have to note that all of our experiences, when they're recorded by the mind and turned into memories, they're recorded in different ways. Some of our memories are stored by a region we won't be talking about much tonight called the hippocampus, which creates narrative memories that in the future we can recall at will as stories about our past. These are known as explicit memories, and tonight's talk is really not about them, so you can just forget <laughs> the hippocampus for now and, and narrative memories. Tonight's talks, uh, talk is based on another kind of memories. Um, when in life we have really emotionally charged experiences, it activates that subcortical region known as the amygdala. I'm sure you've heard of the amygdala by now. It's kind of the 
brain's emotional salient it notes emotionally uh important events in life and these memories are stored uh generally in unconscious regions very often organized by the amygdala in they're stored in the temporal lobe um these implicit memories they're not conscious we can't recall them at will are comprised largely of visual images sounds feeling states in the body and behavioral impulses uh, and these behavioral impulses can be to relax to celebrate to approach to consume or it could be fight flight freeze fawn escape so for example let's look at some concrete because right now it all might sound a little abstract if in childhood when our family was stressed we would go to do something fun I don't know bowling my family didn't go bowling but suppose we did and that was a time where I would experience relief from having to do homework and my parents would relax and we would all bond then in the future when I think of bowling I will start to feel in my body um all the emotions that I experienced originally with when I was first introduced to bowling as a child I'll start to feel good I'll start to feel relaxed I'll want to I'll be very much in favor of the idea I'll my emotional mind will highlight the idea of going bowling is a wonderful thing to do uh on the other hand suppose uh in childhood uh when I was in school if a teacher uh my most difficult ex uh academic experiences were in math then in the future whenever I'm confronted with a math problem my I'll start to feel the same things I experienced as a child when facing something that I didn't feel very good at where I had failed maybe tests in originally my stomach would have contracted I would have felt nervous I would have felt flustered and so even today there's an excellent chance that all those old emotions all those old feelings and impulses uh will flood back into me so essentially when something in the present reminds us of a previous significant event neural circuits connecting all of those unconscious memories send impulses to my body my my amygdala and temporal lobe send impulses to my body which change how I feel and then from those feelings behaviors and a sense of self a sense of of wanting to avoid or wanting to gravitate towards a specific experience will ensue in my childhood my parents uh loved to go to museums and uh so that was a time when we would go with them where uh there was so much joy in my family so still to this day the idea of going to a museum for me it doesn't do this for many other adults I know but for me I experienced this sense of deep reward just going into 
see art because it evokes an entire history of experiences in my past when going to a museum was associated with positive bonding, positive attention, and so forth. Damasio showed that every time in life we face a choice, our brains produce all these mental images of the possible ways we could proceed, and then we'll choose which way to proceed, not based on logic, but based on the physical feelings that are spurred by these ancient associations. Now, let me give you an example of that. Suppose I go into a restaurant someday and uh, maybe I'm under a little bit of, uh, I'm tired, maybe I'm a little bit feeling uh, drained. And so I'll look at the menu uh, at the restaurant and then there'll be all these different possibilities. Uh, some might be kale salad because kale is everywhere. And there's this new fish in New York. Everybody uh, cooks, what is it, branzini or something like that. I have no idea what that fish is, but it's on every menu. And then I, there might be, say, a pasta dish. And that pasta dish might very well uh, trigger memories in childhood of how much I loved eating, you know, macaroni and cheese and manicotti and stuff like that. It was my favorite food as a kid. So when I see the word on the menu, the restaurant, it, it says, uh, uh, I don't know, some pasta dish, I don't know, uh, linguini, uh, I'll my those all that history will light up my body will feel suddenly relaxed and joyful my muscles will relax my heart rate will lessen my skin will not become tight it will soften and all those corporeal changes have a vast influence on the decision i'll make which is i'm going to order the pasta that's the somatic marker hypothesis that our decisions are not made by intellect. Actually, they're made by gut feelings that we unconsciously note. And those unconscious emphasis guide. And Damasio showed this quite elegantly. He showed that people who couldn't read parts of their body, who had damages in the insula, say, or in the right orbital frontal, would not be able to make any choices. They'd be able to be very rational, but they wouldn't be able to finally settle on a choice because the dominant factor in making a decision or how we proceed in life is conditioned not by how we think, but how we feel. We don't act in accordance with how we think. We act in accordance with how we feel. And everybody knows this on some level. There's been times in your life where people say, oh, don't worry about it. You're going to give a great, you know, speech at the wedding for the bride or the groom. And you might know that you have lots of wonderful things to say, but still your stomach might turn into knots and it'll be very difficult for you to do it because the feelings of speaking in public might evoke childhood memories of being laughed at when you spoke up in a class. So all the logic in the world telling you that you should be able to do it won't do it won't matter because you don't 
feel confident. You don't feel the right feelings to do it. Uh, very often, we have feelings that evoke panic attacks. There's no logical reason, and our brain certainly would say, I, "I, there's no reason for me to be anxious right now or panicky, but we have a panic attack. Nonetheless, that's because feelings are evoked by very fast, unconscious impulses based on an entire history of past events, and we act in accordance with them, not with how we think. The thinking is, as one psychologist, Jonathan Haidt, knows, it's like a monkey right in the back of an of a elephant. The monkey might think that it's making the decisions. That's the thinking mind might think that it's governing how we act. But really, how we act is the choice of the elephant, which is a metaphor for the body and um, unconscious feelings spurred by unconscious regions of the brain. Specifically, if you want to know if you're keeping track at home, it would be your right orbital frontal, your right amygdala, the right uh, neuroceptive uh, regions uh, in the medulla and the reticular activating system and all that stuff would be playing a part in those feelings that determine how you act. So uncertain social situations often activate strong somatic responses that conflict with each other. Sometimes we'll have a favorable feeling at the idea that speaking up in a group might result in uh, getting positive attention. But then we also might have negative feelings associated with times in our life in the past where we spoke up and people ignored us or made fun of us. And so the end result eventually is that one overall positive or negative signal will win out. And if you are someone who becomes shy or closes down or doesn't have great confidence in social situations, it means that the negative signals are winning. The stronger those negative feelings in your body, the more you will engage a, a, a system in our brain known as the behavioral inhibition system, which makes us stop. It doesn't allow us to speak. It makes us wait for more signs. It's essentially the brain's extreme self-consciousness system. It's very stressful. It's unpleasant. It diminishes dopamine secretion. It's not a lot of fun. But if we have negative feelings in our body in social situations, then at time and again, we have negative feelings, then that, that ability to relax, you know, claim our space, claim attention, be confident, have fun will be significantly limited because the foundations with how we act or behave stems from, as the Buddha said, feelings. So why would it be that someone constantly struggles with confidence? Well, in childhood, countless interactions with of reaching out for attention to, to parents um, signaling our need for being seen and being understood through nonverbal cues, uh, if they 
are not responded to, if the parent is at times emotionally unavailable, stressed out, uh, has too many other um, obligations and responsibilities, the disinterest or the neglect or the lack of being seen we experience eventually over time can coalesce into um, a greater prevalence of when the idea of seeking connection, it will activate negative feelings. Patterns of interaction, um, when they're positive, when people do respond to our bids for attention in childhood, allow our frontal lobes to develop the axons to inhibit the freeze, the fight, flight, fawn, bottom-up impulses and allow us to engage. But if there's not a long history or a robust history of positive responses, then already those negative feelings will have a prevalence. In uh, our second year of life, I've read that on average, the we hear the word no over a hundred times a day. No, stop, don't do that. You know, probably for God's sake, don't run out into the street. And each time those events happen, the child goes into this contracted state of guardedness, of shock. And if one doesn't receive reliable, sensitive attention and repair, the child over time will begin to, and this is important to understand, link its sense of self with negative feelings in the body. It will stay in the sense of there's something about me that's not good enough that is that elicits this kind of constant tightness in the body. Feelings associated with our sense of self are further shaped in early peer interactions in schoolyards with other kids, where if we get some uh, ongoing social admittance to different cliques and different groups will have a greater, more uh, easy flowing negative and positive feelings. But if we, if we experiencing bullying, uh, we'll have an anxious slumped downcast gaze that is, that translates into negative somatic markers in Damasio's terms, negative feelings. The child that does get a lot of positive regard from peers will hold its chest open, make eye contact, will feel relaxed. And then in the future, in social situations, those positive feelings will be evoked. And from positive feelings, positive, confident actions of approach, speaking will ensue. But if in childhood we experience neglect and then in schoolyards or in interactions with other children, we felt neglected, not seen, uh, I said bullied, uh, uh, in some way shunned, then the, there'll be this perennial slumped, downcast, uh, anxious state in the body. A great developmental psychologist named Joseph Sandler at the Hempstead Clinic noted that 
a developmental milestone for children that grow up to be secure and confident is when they see their image in the mirror or in a photograph or hear their voice on a tape recorder. It elicits positive feelings. Their sense of self has been associated with positive feelings in their body. But if children have experienced not enough attention, neglect, shaming, been bullied, then the child will, that lack of positive feelings, that empty feeling when they see their image will be translated into this emotional belief, there's something wrong with me. I'm not as fun or interesting as other people. Other people are more uh, intelligent or other people are more uh, likable than me. There's something broken about me. Now, we might want to ask ourselves, why does our sense of self get blamed when it might be other kids or, or caregivers or adults that have neglected us? And actually, the psychologist Louis Casolino explains that quite well, that if we blame ourselves, it gives us a greater sense of control that if I can, if only I can prove myself, make myself better, if only I could make myself more lovable, then I will be worthy, then other people will pay attention. But if I believe it's other people as a child that are just neglecting me, then there's nothing I can do it feels hopeless. So the child chooses unconsciously. Uh, it has to blame itself rather than its parents or its peers or its siblings. So when we have, uh, when in when people look at us, if it doesn't evoke a positive feeling in our body, if our sense of self evokes negative feelings and when people reflect our image in their, when they look at us, it uh, evokes an, like completely no positive affect. In fact, it might even be this sense of tightness. Then we'll have difficulty taking risks. We'll experience what's called imposter syndrome, where no matter how much we've proved ourselves in a career, we won't feel that we're good enough or skilled enough. We'll feel like it's a fluke that we've wound up working in a job. We'll feel shame uh, when we have normal struggles. And we'll have a, most of all, we'll have a tendency to freeze and shut down in social situations. So to summarize, a lack of confidence is not a cerebral thing. It's not something that we can correct by thinking. It's a feeling thing. It stems from early experiences that damaged our sense of self and associated our sense of self with either no positive feelings or negative, tight, uncomfortable feelings in our body. And from those feelings, we stay inhibited. We stay in the behavioral inhibition system. And eventually, we will hide from opportunities. So interestingly enough, when we have this damaged sense of self, one of the defenses to it, some people will just become anxious, shut down. 
will not be able to proceed, speak confidently, will have be uh, wind up having very often anxiety in social situations. But other people will respond to their damaged sense of self by building up these defenses known as ego scaffoldings. And these defenses take the shape of grandiosity, narcissism, hubris, and attention-seeking. We've had presidents that have done this where uh, all kinds of famous people who um, basically talk all the time, always seek attention, always exaggerate their skills and accomplishments, and it's all to protect against this feeling of smallness, tightness, contraction that's evoked by their sense of self. So if we don't want to be hubristic, grandiose, narcissistic, and we want to have at the same time confidence in our abilities, confidence to speak when we have something to say, it's treated in the exact same way by healing or addressing the feelings that arise in regards to our sense of self. Not just when we look in the mirror how we feel, but when other people look at us, how do we feel? We want to change the feelings. And again, we can't think our way into confidence, nor can we use logic. To, to, you know, people all the time can say, oh, you got nothing to worry about. Everybody will like you. Just come to this gathering. You'll have a great time. But when you get there, you, you might feel like tongue-tied or nervous or very self-conscious in that behavioral inhibition system and unable to have a good time. And it's because, it's not because you're thinking, it's really at its heart, due to an entire old history of interpersonal experiences that have resulted in uh, your, when, you're in, when other people look at you, you might suddenly feel this plummet of energy going down into the pit of your stomach. You might feel your chest hollow out. You might feel this inherent anxious, nervous hypervigilance in your body. So, this is why in early Buddhism, lack of confidence was addressed by visualizing experiences from our past that evoked positive feelings. We're going to essentially change the feelings that are evoked when we visualize ourselves in social situations, when where people look at us, when we are in uh, challenging situations, because we're going to address that inherent negativity bias in the brain that always gives precedent to negative past experiences. And we're now going to savor all of the positive experiences we can and we're going to link these positive feelings in our bodies with our image of ourself and our mind. And by doing this, we're going to, we, if we, if you're not going to be able to do it in one shot. You have to practice this for quite a while. But over time, if we change the way we feel, when we 
think of ourselves, when we look at ourselves in the mirror, when we hear our name, when um, when our sense of self is reflected back to us by other people, it will change your level of how you act, how confident you are, how you respond. So we're going to be using the most, uh, the earliest tools that the Buddha presented, the Anusatis, specifically, we're going to visualize uh, people and situations where we felt especially effective, capable, and strong. And if we can't think of anything that really happened, we'll just imagine situations where we feel capable or strong. We're going to reflect on our deepest values. We're going to conjure up a positive feeling in our body. And then we're going to link that positive feeling with our inner child or our image of ourself today. Might not make sense to you, but as a Buddhist pastor, therapist, I can guarantee you that it's actually a process that works. So, Let's give it a shot. Let's actually put this into practice. Find a really comfortable seated position. And look away from the the uh the screen, try to like have it so that the screen can't even see you so that you're like, you can close your eyes and not worry about how you appear. So you can, if you're, if you're have a screen in front of you, just flip it off or, uh, you know, turn yourself away so that you don't have to even pay attention to anything that's on your monitor your iphone whatever so what we're going to do is we're going to close our eyes and we're going to bring our attention into the body and take your time and just see if you can find a sensation in your body that would be suitable as a place to return when you want to ground yourself in the present. And by that, I mean, for instance, your breath or the feelings in your belly or maybe the any softness behind your eyes or maybe it will be um, just random ambient sensations in the palms of your hands. And for those of you that just don't feel any comfortable spot in your body, just use as your anchor the sensations you return to, the sounds in your environment arising and passing. So what we're going to do is find an anchor, whether it's an embodied sensation that we don't have to create, it's just there, like your breath, or the contact you make with your chair or the floor. Just 
So let's just do that for a moment. Once you've found something that you can use as your anchor, it's just a sensation in your body that you return to when thoughts have carried you away. Or if some strong sensation suddenly arises, you can go to that predominant sensation, notice it, and then return to your anchor. So, for example, if your anchor is your the sensation of yourself breathing in and out in as it expands and contracts your chest that's your anchor and then suddenly you feel this itch in your toe <laughs> you can bring your attention to your toe and notice just observe the itch until the itch begins to subside and then bring your awareness back to your chest expanding and contracting with the breath. So whatever you've chosen as your anchor, let's just take a moment to relax, soften around it. You can soften your belly, lift and release your shoulders, release any tension in your, the muscles of your face, Soften around the eyes. And for the next few breaths, just let the exhalations be as long and relaxed without forcing it, without trying to make the exhalations too long. Just allow them to be as long as they need. So the practice will be for a little while just trying to stay with your anchor, whether it's the sensations of breathing somewhere in your body or sounds or some other set of sensations, maybe contact with the cushion or maybe could be any other set of sensations in your body. And whenever something seeks your attention, just bring your attention to it, note it. And if it's a thought or an idea, just note it, 
promise it you'll come back to it later and then go back to your anchor. But if it's another sensation, like a scratch, an itch, some comfortable sensation or uncomfortable, just observe it, stay with it for a little while, and then return to your anchor. And if you've drifted away into thought, no worries. Just feel good that you've realize that it's like a little awakening moment when we realize we've been lost in thought and just bring your attention back to your anchor and that's a moment of awakening you've awoken from the daydream of thoughts
So at this point, we're going to move on to the visualization practice. If you can't visualize images in your mind, some people really struggle with that. Just gently, softly list in your mind times that correspond to the examples I use and see if you can just by remembering the names or places of, or situations, it can evoke some positive feelings in your body. So if you can visualize a scene in which you feel especially effective, capable and strong, and this scene can be entirely real based on an actual experience, or an imagined one. So any situation where you felt effective or where you've, in some way, it represented your highest sense of self, you felt confident. And hopefully the scene will reflect your deepest values. It'll be a situation in which you were kind, you were creative, you had sila, what the Buddha called integrity, where you had a set of beliefs and principles that you stood up for. And what's most important is that you keep trying to conjure the right image that will induce positive feelings in your body. You'll notice when you have the right image that your stomach muscles will relax, your shoulders will release a little bit. Maybe there'll be a sense of warmth in your heart center. Look for sensations of energy flowing up and out from your core, a sense of ease and release. Any situation that makes you feel good about yourself and evokes this sense of even the slightest comfort or positive feelings, opening, releasing, warmth. And if you find even the slightest positive feeling that's induced, whether it's in your face or your chest or your belly or your hands or your throat, wherever you feel this positive feeling, see if you can amplify it by spreading it through your body with the breath. So as you breathe out, just allow this good feeling to slowly expand into other areas around it. 
to see if you can cultivate a really positive feeling in your body. And if this is a struggle, or if you'd like to enhance it more, visualize a time when you were connected with somebody in a really positive way, and they reflected back to you this expressed delight, this sense of just appreciation for you. And if no experience comes to mind, just conjure one up. Just imagine someone you associate with wisdom or kindness or spiritual practice, just looking at you and smiling and reflecting back to you your goodness, your resilience, And once again, if you can find even the slightest ease in your body, see if you can use your out-breath to spread it. Spread it through, around. And maybe you can help this process by putting a hand on your heart center. Just Your heart center, just allow your hand to the palm of your hand to drape across the front of your chest, stimulating warmth and a feeling of connectedness there, the heart center. And then see if you can relax your body with this good feeling and cultivate an unforced smile if that's available. An unforced smile, just something that feels naturally positive. Now that we have hopefully some degree of the Buddha called Sukha Vedana, pleasant feelings in the body, I want you to hold in your mind an image of yourself, either as a child or as you appear today. And just hold that image and let it linger with this feeling of release, ease, comfort, openness in your body.
And so gently let your image go. And whenever you feel ready, you can slowly open your eyes and bring your attention back 